And welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, it's our New Year's episode. Yes, I'm excited. I think that this is probably the perfect way to close out to close out the year. This episode has a little bit of everything for everyone. It has murder, it has mayhem, it's definitely macabre, and truthfully, for large parts of it, this was a massive, massive mystery. Yes. A better way to end the year? I think not. Furthermore, not to give too many spoilers away, but the timing of this episode really correlates with some big news in this case. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to take it away for us? Yeah. Our next case takes place in Springfield, Missouri in 2015. To get to that date, we need to look at some history first. Claudine Didi Petra, later Blanchard, was born in 1967 in Chack Bay, Louisiana, and was one of five children. Relatives stated that she had a habit of stealing from her family and retaliated when things didn't go her way. Rumors were Didi's mother stated that she had a variety of illnesses and wouldn't allow her to play outside or assist with chores due to her, a supposed heart murmur. So, Didi's mother was telling her that she had a lot of different health ailments, and as a result, she was limited in what she could do. Again, not too much of a spoiler, but dear listener, keep this in mind and see if you can notice a pattern of behavior. Yes. In 1990, when she was 24, Dee Dee became pregnant by Rod Blanchard, who was only 17. They separated just before she gave birth when Rod realized that he had gotten married for the wrong reasons. On July 27, 1991, Dee Dee gave birth to Gypsy Rose, so named because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy and Rod was a fan of Guns N' Roses. Despite Dee Dee's attempts to get Rod to return, he didn't, and she took her daughter to live with her family. In 1997, family members speculated that she might have killed her own mother by denying her food. So, in researching this case, I did see interviews with other family members Mm. where they bring this up. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that it's not possible, because as we delve into this case, you're going to see more and more of Dee Dee's personality, some of her, her dark side, to say, but... The reason that I somewhat question this is it's it's easy to make these accusations now, but my question is, is why wouldn't they have brought them up then? And also, mm-hmm. if someone dies of malnutrition, it's pretty noticeable that this person has been starving. Right. And the the county coroner isn't going to not at least question it. I would think, and in my researching of this case, I found nothing from the authorities that indicate that they think this. I know that the family members have their doubts, but to play devil's advocate on this, there's nothing that I could find in any records or reports that corroborate this other than, as we stated before, that the family members seem to not be a big fan of Dee Dee. Right, yeah, exactly. So according to Rod, who remained involved with his daughter, by the time Gypsy was three months old, Dee Dee was convinced that she had sleep apnea and began taking her to the hospital, despite repeated overnight stays with a sleep monitor and other tests finding no signs of the condition. 
Dee became convinced that Gypsy suffered a wide variety of health problems, which she told people that it was due to an unspecified chromosomal disorder. At some point, she stated that her daughter had muscular dystrophy and made her use a walker. Gypsy stated that when she was seven or eight, she had a minor accident riding on her grandfather's motorcycle and that Dee Dee said that the doctors gave her a wheelchair she would need to use. The family began to go to Special Olympics events, and in 2001, Dee Dee said Gypsy was eight when she was really 10. She was named the honorary queen of the crew of Mid-City, which was a child-oriented parade held during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So Mardi Gras, to have a little bit of fun background here, Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. It's supposed to be when you eat up all your fatty foods and whatnot right before Lent. Now, over here where I live in Germany, we have what's called Carnival or Fasching. And we are technically in it right now because it starts at 11 minutes after 11 a.m. on November 11th. That's a mouthful. Yeah. But it continues on through Ash Wednesday time frame. And you don't see any real celebrations until like right before that. And that's when people will dress up and we have big parades and it's absolutely huge here. And for the city of New Orleans, which was, you know, Louisiana has a heavy French tradition there. French are, were at that time at least traditionally Catholic. So this was all born of those religious festivals. So them being from the deep south, being from that area, you know, I'm sure that this was a huge honor for her. But mm-hmm. have you ever taken part in any like Mardi Gras or Carnival celebrations? You know, I went to a bar once on accident on a Tuesday that happened to be Mardi Gras. I didn't realize it was until we got there. But that's about the extent of it. Okay, I wasn't sure. Uh, I've never made it to New Orleans. It was something that I wanted to do, but never quite got to it. Yeah, I've just been in local ones in Casper, which is pretty much not really, you know, anything special. It's it's an excuse to charge more money for less beer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So what happened to Gypsy around this time as far as like her schooling and whatnot was concerned? So Gypsy stopped going to school as early as kindergarten. I'm not really for sure when, but it's, but for sure by the time she hit second grade. Her mother homeschooled her due to her supposed severe illnesses. This was likely to further isolate her, though Gypsy did manage to teach herself how to read. So for our non-U.S. listeners, especially those here in Germany, where homeschooling is actually illegal here, you're not allowed to do it. In the States parents can homeschool their children rather than send them to public education. I did one year of homeschooling in fifth grade, and it was not the best experience. I would get like all of my homework done early and whatnot, and I was pretty much just teaching myself because my parents were not teachers. They had a set of curriculum books that they had bought from I don't remember who. And you had to submit them and they would be graded and whatnot. We did have our events day where we got together with other homeschooled kids and did all of our sporting events and stuff like that. But it really took away from the social interaction that you usually get in public schools, which, if I'm being honest, I think that that's more important than 
necessarily what schools will normally teach you outside of basic arithmetic, reading and writing, but like right. all the other courses, I think it's much more important to learn how to be sociable and how to interact with individuals. And you learn that at school where you don't learn that in homeschooling. Humble yeah. opinion. Uh, were you, did you go through any homeschooling processes or whatnot? Um, not me personally, but my son is homeschooled. He's 17. Oh. So it's been just this year. And then he'll have one more year of school that we'll probably homeschool for. So he's old enough to have gone through about as much socialization as he's going to in order to like form that, you know, but he's doing a million times better at homeschooling than he did in public school. But a lot of that is he's autistic. So he struggles sometimes with the social norms anyway. Absolutely. That was I had several friends that were exclusively homeschooled that had the same circumstances and right. for them that was a better learning environment because they were comfortable where they were at and they didn't have to try and read the social cues so right yeah he really has done exponentially better this year doing homeschooling i think this the social issues that he was encountering were just a little bit above where he needed them to be to be comfortable anymore absolutely and then he's not learning anything so there's no point in him being there anyway right so Good on you for taking that responsibility. My hat's off. Now, we've we've talked a bit about Dee Dee and Gypsy, but what's going on with Rod at this time? So Rod remarried, and Dee Dee ended up moving in with her father and stepmother. So Rod did try during this time to continue to speak to Gypsy and to still be part of her life, but Dee Dee didn't make it easy. Dee Dee's father and stepmother later claimed that she would prepare food for the stepmother. She would poison it with weed killer. This led to the stepmother having chronic illnesses during this period. During that time, Dee Dee was arrested for several minor offenses, which included writing bad checks. The family began to regularly confront her about how she treated Gypsy. They also told her about their suspicions about her role in her stepmother's health. So Dee Dee took Gypsy and moved to the New Orleans suburb of Slidell where they lived in public housing and were supported by Rod's child support payments, as well as public assistance that Dee Dee had obtained due to Gypsy's supposed medical conditions. As soon as she moved out, her stepmother's health returned to normal. So it's not necessarily, again, it's something that it was never reported to authorities. It's not really verified information, but it is the family claiming that this has happened. On this one, what's interesting to me is how the health recovered once right. once dd left now weed killer is gosh i can only imagine the how how horrible that must have made her feel if that was happening right but again we're we're, we're innocent until proven guilty and we've already shown enough things that she's done to to kind of show a pattern of behavior of this woman but I'm going to say I feel that if someone had put weed killer in my food, I would either smell it or taste it because the rest of the plates aren't having it. Nobody else is getting sick. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is having this, these issues. I, I feel like as soon as I took a bite and tasted that chemicalness, I probably wouldn't eat anymore. Right. I, I think I probably would have passed that on. But. And we can't we can't know for sure that they say that she they they suspect that she did it 
to their credit, her stepmother's health returned to normal shortly after. So right. may, maybe there's something there. Maybe she was just that much of a terrible person that she was getting sick by having this woman in her house. Uh, yeah. It, so after she moved out, what happened? So Dee Dee took Gypsy to a number of specialists, mostly at the Tulane Medical Center and the Children's Hospital of New Orleans. The list of medical conditions continued to grow and soon included hearing and vision problems. Doctors took a muscle biopsy and found no sign of muscular dystrophy, though she told them that Gypsy was having seizures every few months and got her prescribed anti-seizure medication. There were also several surgeries performed during this period, and Dee Dee often took Gypsy to the emergency room for minor ailments. Hurricane Katrina came in 2005 and devastated the area they lived in, which included their apartment. They left in August for a shelter in Covington, set up for those with special needs. Dee Dee said Gypsy's medical records and birth certificate were destroyed in the flooding. A doctor there suggested they relocate to Missouri, and they moved the next month. Dee Dee and Gypsy first lived in a rented home in Aurora, Missouri. While there, in 2007, Gypsy was honored by the Olay Foundation for Child of the Year. The Olay Foundation advocates for the rights of feeding tube recipients. Feeding tubes. There are several different types. The one that Gypsy had is known as a gastric feeding tube or a G-tube or a button feeding tube. And that's usually inserted through a small incision in the abdomen into the stomach. They do it this way because it's for long-term internal nutrition. So like the needle is inserted through, then there's a pump and, and, and whatnot. Usually takes about 20 minutes. The tube is kept in the stomach and there's usually like a little balloon on its tip, which can be deflated. Or there can be a retention dome. I'm not sure which one Gypsy had. But several times Gypsy has stated how much she absolutely hated having this feeding tube in. And that's understandable because it's painful as well. If you've ever had any stomach or or whatnot surgeries, having things internally feel like they're cut or whatnot, it's really uncomfortable. And so for her to, to win Child of the Year from a foundation that, is sympathetic to children with feeding tubes. And let us be clear, she did not need the feeding tube. Right. But it's an ironic kind of thing. Like other kids that were seriously ill and going through these things. And Gypsy wasn't even a child at this point anymore either. So that's, again, there's all these really weird and odd things and the fact that Dee Dee knows these things she knows how much Gypsy doesn't like this she knows what Gypsy's actual health is and she's putting her through this that's just yeah right so they moved to Aurora temporarily where did they go after that in 2008 they moved to Springfield Missouri where Habitat for Humanity built them a small home with a wheelchair ramp and a hot tub They received media attention for their story of a single mother with a severely disabled daughter that were forced to flee from Hurricane Katrina's devastation. She went by Claudinia Blanchard, but was still known as Dee Dee, and the community often pitched in to help her. You mentioned Hurricane Katrina again. For people outside of the U.S. or who were too young or just have somewhat forgotten, I suppose, because Hurricane Katrina was now 18 years ago. 
Yeah. It was an absolutely devastating Category 5 Atlantic hurricane. Category 5 is as high as you can go on what's known as the Safir Simpson scale, which goes from tropical depression to tropical storm, then hurricanes one through five. Hurricane Katrina was absolutely devastating. It had speeds of 137 knots, which to put it into layman's terms, that's 254 kilometers an hour or 158 miles per hour. The thing about Category 5 hurricanes is they have really stepped up in regularity. So once they started tracking these things, which was in 1851, between that time and 1959, there were 11 Category 5 hurricanes. Since 1960, there have been 29. Wow. So it was it was brutal. The other thing that Hurricane Katrina is very well known for is the fact that it took so long to get help to Louisiana and New Orleans from mm-hmm. the national side of it. It's something that President Bush Jr. has been criticized for. Hurricane Katrina caused 1,836 fatalities, and the damage is estimated between 97 and $145 billion. And New Orleans itself was hit the hardest because the Army Corps of Engineers designed levees that were supposed to prevent flooding of the city didn't. They gave way and they collapsed. Now, to put the force of this storm, it formed in the Atlantic, crossed over Florida, and then once it hit the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, it just became super, super strong. Now, it hit the New Orleans area and it went up and into Mississippi. It was 150 miles or 240 kilometers for our outside the U.S. listeners near Meridian, Mississippi, before it lost its hurricane status. And it was downgraded to a tropical storm. And then it made its its way all the way to Tennessee, which is about halfway up from the Gulf of Mexico to Canada, before it was downgraded to a tropical depression. And it kept going as a tropical depression until it was absorbed in a cold front by the Great Lakes. And actually, the storm ended up reaching eastern Canada. So this hurricane went all the way from Louisiana to Canada. That's how powerful Hurricane Katrina actually was. And a lot of people died. There was a lot of damage caused. The federal government was slow to react. There's a million different reasons that have been given for that, but it was a tragedy. And the thing is, is we see Dee Dee is an opportunist and she takes anything that she can and uses it. And while it's horrible that they went through Hurricane Katrina in that area, you can see again and again, like we've already mentioned it twice, how she's using this terrible national disaster to garner even more sympathy for what she's doing. Exactly. So Dee Dee took advantage of all the support she received on behalf of Gypsy, which included many charitable donations. They received free flights to see doctors at Children's Mercy Hospital, which was in Kansas City. There were free trips to Walt Disney World, and Make-A-Wish Foundation paid for backstage passes to see Miranda Lambert and get her autograph. The Make-A-Wish Foundation, which you mentioned, I absolutely love this charity. And I've actually personally donated to them from time to time. 
what they do is they take terminally ill or children that are fighting possible terminal diseases and they ask them, hey, what is one thing that you would like to do in this life? Because sometimes the kids don't make it. And the most requested thing is a trip to Disney World. I knew a girl that had leukemia and what her request was is she wanted to have a family reunion in Texas and they made it happen for her. And she she did survive. She beat the cancer. Good. So Make-A-Wish is a, is a great foundation. I do feel in a way that as a large charity, they kind of dropped the ball here because not only did she get Miranda Lambert concert tickets from Make-A-Wish, there were three Walt Disney World trips that Make-A-Wish paid for as well from different areas. Now, Dee Dee didn't make the same request in from the same Make-A-Wish office. Chapter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were, but because there wasn't like a national database, they didn't see that she was abusing this system, which potentially took something away from another child that really could have needed it. That said, if if you've seen any of her home videos where she's at, at Disney World, she looks happy. It, it is the happiest place on earth, they say. Uh, I, I took my honeymoon there, so I can confirm it's, it's, it's fun. It's a very, very double-sided feeling that I have when I watch her in those videos because I'm really happy that she's getting these moments of happiness because I know what she's going through. But... At the same time, how she's receiving them really does leave a sour taste. Yeah, that's been my experience. Have you, by any chance, gone to uh, any of the, the Disney facilities? I did go to Disney World once when I was 17. I don't remember very much of it because I was in my angsty goth phase. Uh, mm. So <laughs> I probably underappreciated it. But I did remember walking into, I believe it was like Walt Disney World, like we were, we just gotten there and this little kid came up and took my hand and then a couple of seconds later realized that I was not his mother and Oops. his mom soon found him. But he was like, he just came up and just grabbed my hand and was just walking with us. And I was like, what are you doing? Somebody <laughs> lost a child. I I need another adult. Yes. <laughs> well, we got married and I had to to leave for the army and I came back and we had we got this really 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 sweet deal for uh four days in the park pass and she had been there once before I had never gone I thought it was for kids by that point in my life and she convinced me this is the best idea let's have our honeymoon there so we did and we took a train down from North Carolina where I was living at the time we got there we stayed at a hotel. We got up early the next morning to make it to the Magic Kingdom entrance and see the little opening show. And, you know, I, I was just kind of going along with it. And then all of a sudden I saw Mickey Mouse standing on, on you know, right in front of the gate and whatnot. And, like, I, uh, I was five years old. All of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, it's Mickey Mouse. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. I awesome. regret nothing about it. So. That uh, that that's why when I see her, I'm like, I know where she's at. I know how she's feeling. I know that she doesn't deserve it because of the physical illnesses, but the trauma that she's being put through. I do hope that in those moments she was able to forget about that and just enjoy the moment. Yeah. 
So what was going on with them at this point then? So Rod was paying $1,200 a month in child support, sending Gypsy gifts, and occasionally talking to her on the phone. Rod and his wife tried to go visit Gypsy, but Dee Dee would change plans. She told her neighbors that Gypsy's father was an abusive drug addict and alcoholic who had never come to terms with the health issues and never sent them money. Gypsy herself was only five foot tall. She was nearly toothless, wore large glasses, and spoke in a high childlike voice. This helped to perpetuate the stories her mother told. That and Dee Dee told Gypsy that her medication would make her hair fall out, so she regularly shaved it. Gypsy often wore wigs or hats. Gypsy wore a feeding tube and used supplemental oxygen. She was fed the children's liquid nutrition supplement, Pediasure, well into her 20s. Gypsy endured further medical treatments. She had her saliva glands, which Dee Dee would numb with topical anesthetic, treated with Botox, and then removed. Due to the lack of salivatory glands coupled with medications for the seizure disorder, she had to have most of her teeth removed and replaced with a bridge. She also had tubes in her ears from purported ear infections. The salivary gland removal. This is another one of those things where, so Dee Dee tells the doctors that Gypsy's drooling a lot. So she has to have the surgery. Now, what they like to do is usually they start with the submandibular gland. That's the first one that they try to remove because that creates a lot of saliva. And it's a small incision, like two or three centimeters long or about an inch long, just over. And then they locate it underneath the jaw and remove it. Now, this one alone won't cause too much problems moving forward. You're still going to make a lot of saliva, which you need because food is dry, makes it very hard to swallow, harder to digest. And also the saliva works as kind of a cleaning agent in your mouth. So if she continued, now it doesn't, it doesn't say that she had, as far as I know, all of them removed. But if she did, that causes a lot more medical issues later on. So right. I, I did try to find out which ones she did or didn't have removed. But there, there isn't a whole lot of information out there that I could find other than that. Right. I mean, again, Gypsy's got to know that some of this stuff that her mom's saying just isn't right. Mm-hmm. So do you know like how... Dee Dee kind of controlled that narrative and kept Gypsy in check. In the presence of others, Dee Dee would hold Gypsy's hand. So if she said something wrong, she could give it a hard squeeze to silence her. When they were alone, Dee Dee was more abusive and would strike her with her hands or with a coat hanger. However, doctors began to become suspicious. Dr. Bernando Flasterstein, a pediatric neurologist, ordered MRIs and blood tests, which found no abnormalities. He questioned the muscular dystrophy diagnosis, saying, I don't see any reason why she doesn't walk. He had seen Gypsy stand and support her own weight and stated that Dee Dee was not a good historian. He went so far as to contact New Orleans doctors that Gypsy had seen and learned that her original muscle biopsy came back negative. This also proved that she had lied when she said that all of the medical records had been destroyed by the flooding. Dr. Flasterstein noted that there was a possibility of Munchausen by proxy syndrome, which Dee Dee saw after gaining access to the notes. She stopped taking Gypsy to see him, and he didn't follow up with reporting Dee Dee to social services. He had reported that other doctors told him to treat them with golden gloves, quote-unquote, and doubted authorities would believe him. Dr. Flasterstein later said, poor Gypsy, she suffered all those years and for no reason. 
He stated he wished he could have done more and said, having seen what happened, if I see another in the future, another Munchausen by proxy, I probably should be more aggressive. So Munchausen by proxy. Now it's called factitious disorder imposed on other, and you also have factitious disorder imposed on self. Has a long history. The name itself, Munchausen syndrome, derives from Baron Munchausen, who was a literary character based on an actual German nobleman named Hieronymus Karl Friedrich Freiherr von Munchausen. Historically, he was just a well-known storyteller. He would tell these fantastical and impossible stories about himself. And around 1951, Richard Astor used this to describe a pattern of self-harm in which individuals fabricated histories, signs, and symptoms of illness. And he was quite the reader, and he remembered the stories of Baron Munchausen. And so that's where the name came from, because this guy would tell such incredible stories about himself. What this ends up being in this case, though, is you're not telling them about yourself. You're telling it about somebody else. What Dee Dee is doing is she's feeding into this need for sympathy and really just attention by using her child, which is the most common way that this is is done. Now, a lot of times we're seeing everything that she is doing is like textbook Munchausen by proxy. So. The primary motive may be to gain attention or to manipulate uh, physicians. There's a lot of risks to the person that is being abused. I mean, we see Gypsy's losing her teeth. She has no idea how old she is. She has feeding tubes inserted that aren't necessary. She's being isolated. Like, there are so many so many things and and the thing about munchausen by proxy is it has about a six to ten mortality rate and as this doctor said here he should have been more aggressive about it because there there does pose a danger to the person being abused now yeah i think that it would have been hard for him because this family was so she was nationally known. Mm-hmm. She was the survivor of Hurricane Katrina. She was the selfless mother that was taking care of poor Gypsy, who had, you know, a laundry list of issues. Like the other doctors said, nobody's going to believe you anyway. And that's so horrible for both the physician and the child in this case, because there's just nothing that seems like they could have done to get Gypsy out of this situation. Right. In 2009, an anonymous call came into the police department about Dee Dee using different names and birth dates for herself and Gypsy and called into question Gypsy's health, stating it was better than claimed. Officers performed a wellness check, and Dee Dee told them that she used misinformation to make it harder for her abusive ex-husband to find them. They didn't talk to Rod, and reported that Gypsy genuinely seemed to be mentally disabled, so they closed the case. On Gypsy's 18th birthday, Rod called to talk to her, and Dee Dee instructed him not to mention her age because she thinks she's 14. Dee Dee had, at least one time, forged a copy of the birth certificate, moving the year up to 1995 so that she could claim Gypsy was still a teenager. 
Later, Gypsy would say that for 15 years, she did not know what her real age was. Dee Dee sometimes claimed the birth certificate was lost to Katrina flooding, but she did have keep another copy with the real birth date. Gypsy recalled seeing it during one of their hospital visits, but Dee Dee said it was a misprint. Beginning in 2001, Gypsy began attending science fiction and fantasy conventions. She would sometimes dress in costumes so she could blend in better in her wheelchair. The community was known to be diverse and inclusive. So these conventions, I think probably worldwide, the most famous one is probably the San Diego Comic-Con, mm-hmm. which last year had over 135,000 attendees. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty big community. It's also, as said, known to be diverse and inclusive. A lot of people tend to latch on to certain fandoms because you feel that inclusivity. Maybe people who had a hard time adjusting to society in a way, finding people with common interests, definitely find themselves drawn to something like a a convention where, hey, I like Star Trek. A lot of people that like Star Trek will be there. I will be amongst people that are similar to me. Mm -hmm. So have you ever gone to one of these conventions yourself? I've been to like local comic cons, but nothing that's been on a massive scale or anything. Yeah, I've I'm in the same boat on that. I've been to smaller ones. I mean, the San Diego Comic Con, I, I do watch some of the streams on YouTube and watch some of the. I guess you would. The panels, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, certain certain uh, fandoms that I, I'm a part of. So I do I do enjoy it, and I get the draw. And especially for someone that has been so isolated like Gypsy has, I can definitely see where she would want to be in some of these things. Because, again, she would feel included. She could feel more, for lack of a better word, normal in these situations but we do have some pretty good ones over here i'm hoping to to get to a couple this next year we'll see but if you have not been to one even a local one i definitely recommend just going and and seeing how friendly this community can be Mm -hmm. so she likes going to these things what uh What actually ends up happening with her going to some of these conventions? So in 2011, Gypsy made what may have been an attempt at escape. Her mother found her in a hotel room with a man she met online who was 36 at the time. Dee showed him paperwork, giving Gypsy's younger age of 16 and not 20, and threatened him with the police. After, according to Gypsy, Dee Dee smashed her computer with a hammer and threatened to do the same with her fingers if she ever attempted to escape again. She also kept Gypsy handcuffed to her bed for two weeks. Dee Dee also told her that she had filed paperwork with the police, so she tried to go for help. They wouldn't believe her. Gypsy later said, My mother brought me back with her, smashed my computer. She chained me to a bed, tinted the window so nobody could see what was going on inside the house, and put bells on the door so if I tried to sneak out again, she can hear. I had to ask her, you know, if I can go to the bathroom. She'd unchain me, take me to the bathroom, but then chain me back up to the bed. She would starve me, she would hit me with a coat hanger, and she would call me derogatory names. For about two weeks, that happened. I went from looking at her like a loving parent to seeing her as somebody that I was quite afraid of. I felt like there was no hope. I just kept thinking, dear God, get me out of here somehow. So, not 
necessarily given this set of what she's saying, but when we look at some of the things she says, it makes me think a lot of Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. because Gypsy could walk. Right. Gypsy didn't need the feeding tube. Like she wasn't as sick as her mom said she was. And in a lot of ways, Gypsy knew some of the things her mom was saying wasn't right. And there was a door right there. Right. But her mother's manipulated her into believing that she requires Didi to live. Mm-hmm. Like without Didi, there's nothing else. And Gypsy's terrified of that. So for me, that that screams, at least on some level, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. Where you become dependent upon the captor and you start to believe in the humanity and you don't see them as much as a threat and that you're, you're at some level holding the same values and whatnot. Right. And Gypsy is like, Dee Dee is a master manipulator. She has been manipulating everyone this entire time. Again, sometimes people see through it but nobody has been able to do anything about it. And again, she manipulates the authorities. She manipulates her, her ex-husband. She manipulates her daughter. Right. Again, like the, and what we're seeing here is in, in what you just read is massive, massive abuse, physical, emotional, mental and these are things, these things that Gypsy is saying are things that were found out later to be true. Like the windows being tinted, handcuffs around the house, like things like this that we know that Gypsy's not necessarily lying about these particular things. Right. And that's, to me, this is also saying that Dee Dee's a bit scared that she's losing control of her daughter. And is doing anything that she can to wrestle that control back. And that, again, that just screams abuse, which we've covered in other episodes. Please go back and listen to those if, if, if you haven't. But it's, it's heartbreaking to see a mother willingly do this to their child. Yeah. So where, after, after this series of abuse, where did Gypsy go from there? So in 2012, Gypsy, who was actually 21, was using the internet on Dee Dee's computer in secrecy after she went to bed. There she met Nicholas Godajohn in a Christian singles group. He was from Big Bend, Wisconsin, and had a history of autism spectrum disorder, as well as mental illnesses known as disassociative identity disorder. He also had a criminal record for indecent exposure. In 2014, Gypsy was 23 and had become close with neighbor Aaliyah Woodman's who was the same age, though neither knew it. Aaliyah considered herself a big sister. Gypsy confided that she and Go to John had discussed eloping and had even chosen names for their potential children. Gypsy had five different Facebook accounts and used them to talk and flirt with Go to John. Sometimes they discussed BDSM elements, of which Gypsy has since said that she was that was more than she was interested in. Go to John claimed to have multiple personalities inside himself, one named Victor, who was the violent one. He would later also explain this to the police during interrogation. So what we used to call multiple personality disorder, they now call DID or Disassociative Identity Disorder, as you stated earlier. 
it's where somebody has the presence of at least two distinct, relatively enduring personality states. It's often accompanied with memory gap, more severe than could be explained by like ordinary forgetfulness. And the personality states, they usually alternatively show in a person's behavior, like massive amounts. And what, mm-hmm. what I find is he's not some, and I'm not a psychologist, but from watching so many of his interviews, because believe it or not, dear listeners, we do a lot of research before we, we put these out and we mm-hmm. want to give you the best information we can. When he's describing these things in his interviews, both printed and video, it's not, Victor is not a distinct personality from Nicholas. Victor is like, is more of an alter ego than a, a separate personality. It was kind of, it felt more like his, his excuse or his, his comfort blanket to kind of disassociate himself from it while still maintaining the memories of everything that Victor did, which usually Victor would not remember what Nicholas did and Nicholas wouldn't remember what Victor did. So it's, it's a really interesting case study on that. If if you do want to take the time and, and read and listen and watch what he says and does, I definitely feel for the mental disabilities that Nicholas has. However, to say that, that for, for him to try and blame it on disassociative identity disorder, I'm not saying he doesn't have it, but it doesn't seem like that was the case with him for the most part when he was with Gypsy. Right. Now, Gypsy herself also claimed to have these different personalities when she was talking with Victor. She had one named Candy, who was kind of the the loose woman of the night that craved Nicholas's body all the time while dressing like a cute schoolgirl. Uh, she had another one that was more goth. She she had four or five different ones, and she would actually dress up in different wigs and stuff when they would have um, their video chats and whatnot. And she would she would ask him, well, which one of me do you want to talk with this evening? So, again, it, it kind of makes me question things a little bit. It feels like they dipped their toes into researching what this was and and not so much understanding the actuality of what it is. Right. So again, that's, that's just, that's just your, your humble co-host Bob giving his two cents on this, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, just someone who has watched a million of these interviews. Right. So when she told Aaliyah about this, what was Aaliyah's reaction? Aaliyah tried to talk her out of it and considered her plans to be fantasies and dreams that nothing like this would ever really take place. She thought Gypsy was being taken advantage of by an online sexual predator, not knowing her real age. Dee Dee tried to prevent her from using the internet by destroying her cell phone and laptop, but Gypsy maintained contact with Godajan until 2014 by stealing a cell phone and connecting it to the home's Wi-Fi. He saved printouts of her posts. The next year, Gypsy and Godajan arranged to meet in Springfield at a movie theater, which Gypsy paid for. 
The plan was for him to casually bump into her while they were both in costume and would strike up a relationship. She planned to later introduce him to her mother. Dota John ended up striking up a conversation with Dee Dee in the movie theater. According to Gypsy, Dee Dee thought that he was creepy and quote unquote gave off all, a sort of a dangerous vibe. So she moved down a couple of seats and told Gypsy to follow her. So again, not to get too much into the spoilers here, but you know, maybe maybe Dee Dee could have been onto something here. Right. She uh again, a lot of times like master manipulators and people that have those types of darkness i suppose in them you know like gravitates towards like so or at least has a way of of, of sensing it out so not right. to give dd too much credit i i do think it was more of again her just trying to keep gypsy isolated but yeah keep listening dear listener yes when they did meet for the first time in the movie theater go to john stated that gypsy led him to the bathroom and they had sex they continued to talk on the internet and eventually began planning the murder of Dee Dee. In recorded jailhouse calls, Goto John said, So first she asked me, How badly do you want to be with me? She texted him, Are you ready? Like in all ways, hun? Goto John stated, I told her, I'd do anything to be with you. You know that. And she said, As long as my mom is alive, I can't be with you. She made that very clear. I was like, Are you serious? This is not anything to joke around about. And she said, it's the only way we can be together. So I'm pretty much stuck in on this situation, and I just ended up going along with it. Gypsy later stated, I felt, how else am I going to escape? It seemed like taking her out of the equation completely was the only option. At first, the couple began looking at different poisons, arson, and even a gun. Gypsy later told him that she didn't have it in her to kill her mother, then suggested that he be the one to kill her. They began looking into using a knife because Goto John said he was good with them. Gypsy stated that she didn't want her to suffer because she was still her mother. Goto John returned to Springfield June 10, 2015, while Dee Dee and Gypsy were away at a doctor's appointment. After returning home, Dee Dee went to sleep, and he showed up at their house. Goto John stated, I basically had two thoughts pop in my head. One was, take her and run. The other was, this woman is dead. She's not going to get between me and her. I loved her so deeply that from the first step I walked into the house, I knew there was no going back. Gypsy led him in and gave him duct tape, gloves, and a knife with the understanding that he would use it to murder Dee Dee. Gypsy went into the bathroom to hide and covered her ears so that she wouldn't have to listen to her mother's screams, though she still heard them and stated that she no longer wanted this, but was, quote-unquote, too afraid to go and help. Goto John stabbed Dee Dee 17 times in the back while she was sleeping. Afterward, the two went into Gypsy's room where they had sex. They then took $4,000, mostly comprised of child support funds that Dee Dee had kept in the house. They went to a motel outside of Springfield for a few days while planning their next move. So, Dee Dee purchases the, the knife. Mm-hmm. She also at that point had shoplifted a, a couple items, but she gets the knife. She gives the knife, the gloves, the duct tape to go to Jean, who she knows is there to murder her mother. Mm. Then she goes and she hides in the bathroom. She hears what's going on. I think she knew at that point that that ship had sailed. There was, there was nothing that she could do. Right. Then they go to her room and they have sex. 
thing with that is, however, is that was something that Gypsy had offered him because go to John's original plan was that he was going to rape Dee Dee and kill her or kill her and then have sex with her corpse. And Gypsy didn't want that to happen to her mother. So she said, well, what if right afterwards we go to my room and we have sex together? Would that play out your fantasy enough? And these are things that go to John has also admitted to having said and had the desires to do in his interviews. So again, this just, this speaks to this guy had a lot of darkness. He did. Yeah. There's just no two ways around it. He, he has kind of played it off. Well, I did it out of love. I did it out of this. This was a convenient conduit for a lot of his darker desires. So, like, this guy's a ticking time bomb, and Gypsy lit the match. And yeah. it was the perfect cocktail for disaster. Mm-hmm. So, what did Gypsy say about this right after, like, how did she feel after her mother was killed? So, Gypsy stated, I was happy because I was free. And the couple recorded themselves at the hotel with smiling faces, despite the horror that had just occurred. They were witnessed several times on security cameras at several local stores. Gypsy said that she believed that they had managed to get away with the crime at that point. They mailed the murder weapon back to go to John's home in Wisconsin to avoid being caught with it and then took a bus there. Several witnesses saw them and remembered seeing Gypsy with a blonde wig walking unassisted. On June 15, 2015, Greene County Sheriff's Department was called to the home of Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose to conduct a welfare check. This was due to some troubling Facebook posts that had been made earlier in the evening under the shared name Djip Blanchard. When phone calls went unanswered, several friends and neighbors went to the house. Although the two often went unannounced on medical trips, they didn't believe that was the case since Dee's car was in the driveway. So welfare checks are something that's used in the U.S. more than other places I've been where, let's say, Rebel and I have decided we're going to tape our podcast on Thursday and I don't hear from Rebel and then I don't hear from Rebel again on Friday and then Saturday and I'm concerned. So I can call the police where Rebel lives and say, my friend hasn't answered their phone for several days. I'm concerned. Can you go check on them? There's no criminal intent. There's no nothing really there. It's just the police going to check on my friend and make sure that they are okay. And that's what they're doing here. It's not that terribly uncommon. I did have an ex's parents that would use that in the weirdest ways. Like if we had cut off contact with them because of reasons, uh, they would immediately call the police out there for for a welfare check. And it was just their way of being pains but this in this case this is how it's supposed to be done especially especially we won't go into what those facebook posts actually said but they were very detailed and they were very dark and brutal so if you want to go and read them for yourself go ahead but that is exactly why these welfare checks exist is in cases like this right so did she ever give a reason as to why she made such like horrific posts? 
So later Gypsy would say that she wanted her mother to be found and that's why she made the Facebook posts. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so it be, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it was just that they were kind of goading each other into, you know, this kind of behavior and she was like, well, I'm going to do this, you know. It could, it's basically her word. Well, I, I could absolutely see that being the case. And I'm going to to say, like, Gypsy lived with a master manipulator all her life. Mm-hmm. She saw how her mother would turn things to make things more sympathetic for herself. And some of that has to rub off. And we'll discuss later how much I think Gypsy understood the situation she was in. But yeah. I do think that Gypsy understood that she had to protect herself and alleviate some of this. Maybe she did really want her mother to be found. Or maybe she that isn't at all what it was and she saw a way out. So, yeah, only Gypsy knows that. But so the police come for the welfare check. What do they find? So. Originally, there was the, the friends came into the house. There was protective window, or protective film on the window, so it made it impossible to see inside with the low light. No one answered the door, so the friends called 911. When the police arrived, they had to wait for a search warrant to be issued before they could enter. However, one of the neighbors was allowed to climb through an open window, an unlocked window, where they saw all of Gypsy's wheelchairs present, though the house appeared to be undisturbed. He originally missed seeing Dee Dee's body. When the search warrant was issued, the sheriff's deputies discovered Dee Dee's body in her room. She was lying on the bed face down in a pool of blood. She'd been dead for several days. Since Gypsy's wheelchair and medications were found at the house, it was speculated that she'd been abducted. A GoFundMe account was set up to pay for funeral expenses uh, for Dee Dee and possibly Gypsy. Everyone that knew the Blanchards were concerned that Gypsy had been kidnapped and was helpless without her wheelchair, medication, oxygen tanks, and feeding tube. A neighbor who was among those gathered in front of the Blanchard home told police that she knew Gypsy had a secret online boyfriend. This is Aaliyah. He showed them printouts that she had saved, which showed his name, his full name of Nicholas Godajon. Based on the information, police asked Facebook to trace the IP address from the post to Dee Dee's account, and they learned they came from Big Ben, Wisconsin, where Godajon lived with his parents. The following day, police raided Godajon's home, where they found Gypsy safe and well. Investigators discovered the surprising fact that Gypsy was actually an adult who did not have any of the physical and mental health issues that her mother claimed she did. According to Gypsy, the last thing that she said to go to John was that they were going to stick together. At first, Gypsy tried to pretend she didn't know what had happened, didn't know that her mother was deceased. Early in the police interview, they informed her of what they'd found at her home. So... Here is what I was talking about as far as Gypsy's understanding of what's happening. Gypsy is not well-versed in the American judicial system. Even people that are can struggle with it a bit. Mm -hmm. When she was interviewed with the police, things do break down rather, rather quickly. She did interview with the police. She feigned ignorance at first. Then later she starts telling her story. One thing that stuck out to me very, very hardcore to show that she did not understand the gravity of the situation she found herself in was she actually 
asked, hey, am I going to be out of here in time to see the new Star Wars movie that's coming out? Mm -hmm. So, again, that she was an adult, but she had never been raised to be an adult. So while she is physically there, mentally, her level of understanding of what was happening in this process, it wasn't zero, but it was severely diminished. So, again, that's something that moving forward in this podcast, I think it would be good for our listeners to take that into account into what we're going to further discuss. So how did the public take this? Because Gypsy has been this girl that's she's a child. She's disabled. They thought that she was a helpless abductee because of what they found at the house. So what did the public think? So once it came to light how Didi had treated her for her entire life, she actually garnered a lot of sympathy. While in county jail, Gypsy gained 14 pounds, which is usually unheard of because people typically lose weight in jail. And she was severely malnourished. Well, yeah, didn't we? We did a an episode earlier where someone lost over 50 pounds in a short yeah. amount of time while they were incarcerated. So this is the exact opposite. Yes. And her father, Rod, stated, I don't blame her for what she done. Everyone failed Gypsy for myself, her mother, doctors, the police, social services. We all looked out for ourselves. We wasn't totally looking out for her. She and Goda John were originally charged with first-degree murder, which can carry the death penalty or life without parole. But county prosecutor Dan Patterson announced that he would not seek it for either, meaning the death penalty, stating that the case was extraordinary and unusual. After Gypsy's attorney obtained medical records from Louisiana, the county offered a plea bargain to second-degree murder for her, which she accepted in July of 2015 and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Her plea bargain did not require her to testify against her co-conspirator. Which is really unusual. Oftentimes, that's one of the carrots that prosecutors dangle when Mm -hmm. they have multiple suspects. They'll hone in on one to, I guess, quote unquote, take the fall. And the other one will often receive a reduced sentence for their participation in the trial of their co-conspirator. So for that not to be a condition shows just how irregular this case actually was. And the idea that someone in the American justice system saw that. Again, it kind of points to how massively irregular this case just is. Yeah. So did her father say anything else? He did. He stated, when I saw her walking into court, I was in shock. I was freaked out. I couldn't believe it. He also stated a lot of questions started popping in my head about what was real over the last 23 years of her life. It all makes sense now, you know, why she kept Gypsy at such a distance from me all these years and why they moved so far away. She didn't want Gypsy to develop any kind of relationship with anybody that might take her away from her. I felt so stupid. Like, why couldn't I see through this? Why, 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 why? It's all I kept asking myself. Go to John face the first degree murder charge. Prosecutor stated that he initiated the murder plot and both he and Gypsy admitted that he was the one who actually killed Dee Dee. Go to John was more severely prosecuted due to the fact that he had less sympathy for him since he wasn't involved in the abuse. He initially waived his right to 
trial by jury, but changed his mind in June of 2016. In January of 2017, his trial was postponed when prosecutors requested a second psychiatric examination. His lawyer stated that he had an intelligence quotient of 82 and was on the autism spectrum, suggesting diminished capacity. His trial was set for November of 2018. So again, we're seeing a lower IQ on the spectrum, um, diminished capacity for understanding. This has in our other podcast episodes, we've discussed this as well, so I'm not going to go too, too far with it. But we do see a pattern of when people are meeting these specific prerequisites, I suppose is a good word for it. They are more prone to suggestion. Mm-hmm. Now, go to John's go to John and Gypsy both say that he was the one that came up with the idea in the first place. But it didn't take a lot for Gypsy to make that fantasy a reality. So, again, that's I'm not going to excuse either one or lay full blame at the feet of either one. Like I said earlier, this was a perfect cocktail for disaster. But, you know, can this this is showing like the the patterns that we've seen in other podcast episodes we've done to now that. I'm sure, dear listeners, you can you can put that together for yourself. But I'm just here to to give that that ship a little rudder adjustment for you. Yes. So his trial was set for November 2018. What happens when this trial starts? In their opening statement, prosecutors alleged that Godijan had deliberated for over a year before the crime. However, his lawyers pointed to his autism and said that Gypsy had formulated the plan. In his love-struck phase, he had just done as she had asked. Prosecutors showed text messages, sometimes sexually explicit, that the two shared in the week leading up to the murder. They often used various personas, and in some texts, he asked for details about Dee Dee's room and sleeping habits. They also showed the video from the police interview where he admitted to having killed her. On the third day, Gypsy testified. She said that she had suggested that go to John kill Dee Dee to end the abuse. She also considered getting pregnant by him in order to force Dee Dee into accepting him. Along with the knife that Godijan used to kill Dee Dee, Gypsy stole that along with baby clothes from a store during a shopping trip. However, Godijan never told what he thought of the pregnancy plan, so she never went through with that. So again, what I am seeing here is really the level of manipulation from Gypsy at this Mm -hmm. point. She hadn't decided yet if she wanted her mother dead or herself pregnant but either way she was using herself and her situation to manipulate a better outcome for herself right the pregnancy would make mom accept my boyfriend my boyfriend will get me out of here i'll be safe not necessarily it's not that i can't see why her mind would want that but she is also willing to get somebody else to murder her mother since she's not willing to do it herself. This is, she found someone who was easily manipulated and took the tools that her mother had given her as a master manipulator to make it happen. And someone died as a result. Mm -hmm. So how did the trial progress? After four days, the case went to the jury, who had the option of finding him guilty of one of three murder charges, involuntary manslaughter, second degree or first degree murder, 
or not guilty of any of them. The jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. In February 2019, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder conviction, which was the only possible sentence since the prosecutors declined to seek the death penalty. Bodajan asked Judge David Jones for leniency on the armed criminal action charge, which carries a minimum of a sentence of only three years, because he had fallen, quote-unquote, blindly in love with Gypsy. He instead received a sentence of 25 years on that charge, which runs concurrent with the life sentence. Go to John's lawyer, Dwayne Perry, motion for a new trial. Perry argued that the jury should not have been allowed to hear that Go to John had considered raping Dee Dee on the night, and also argued that the state psychologist should not have been allowed to testify. He stated that Go to John's psychologist should have to establish that he had diminished capacity. While the judge concluded that the appeals court could find it a reversible error pertaining to the psychologists, he still denied it. In jail, Go to John said, no matter what happens, I'm always going to love her unconditionally, no matter what happens. It doesn't matter if we break up. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm always going to love her unconditionally. To this day, I still do love her. I do love her, and I know for the fact that she still does love me. Gypsy said, now that I've grown and matured, I know the difference between love and infatuation. He wants to feel whatever he wants to feel, but I don't love him no more. So I question Gypsy and go to John both on this. Go to John a little bit less so. I do believe that his was more of an obsession, an infatuation with this woman that is Gypsy. Mm -hmm. But Gypsy, to this day, I question whether Gypsy truly understands what a healthy, loving relationship is because she's never seen it. She's never had it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that Dee Dee in some way loved her daughter because I, I just I have to believe at some point in her life she did. But she wasn't able to show that in a healthy and loving way. And so for Gypsy to be able to say I love someone or I don't love someone, maybe she's starting to understand things a little bit better because she is being allowed to learn how to be an adult even though it is in a prison environment Uh however we talk and we did talk about it a few episodes ago about how important it is to have those healthy loving relationships and since she's never seen one i doubt that she has the capacity to really understand what she's looking for other than some fantasy that maybe she's read about or seen uh, on the television or read in the books. I just, it's hard for me to see her making that leap without an actual experience of it. I mean, a lot of people that grow up regularly don't have a real understanding of what a healthy, loving relationship is. And then when they find that, it's like, oh my God, this is what it was supposed to be? So... I I can't imagine that, and I feel for her on this. This is terribly sad that up until this point in what we're reading and seeing, the only loving relationship she thinks she's had is with the man that murders her mother. Right. So after they were arrested, what, like, did they maintain contact? Was there at some point they broke it off or? After they were arrested, neither spoke to the other again. So, oh, okay. Yeah. 
And Gypsy later said, everybody that I'd ever met in my life, I kept thinking about their faces and how hurt they must have been to find out that these two people that they had cared so much for were no longer who they thought. She also said, I would describe my relationship with my mother as complicated. When I was younger, it was a lot better just because she was like a best friend to me. We used to do things together all the time, go to the movies, go to the park, the zoo. When I was probably about five or six, my mother told me that I had epilepsy and that I was paralyzed from the waist down. She said I had cancer and she would shave off my hair and tell me it's going to fall out anyway, so let's keep it nice and neat. She would also say that I couldn't eat and that I needed a feeding tube. And so I would have a formula through the feeding tube. And I'd also receive my medication through the feeding tube. I'm not sure all the names of the medication that my mom was making me take, but there was a lot of ones that basically just put me under a sedated state. The medications did affect my teeth. They started to deteriorate and some of them had to be extracted. I had many, many surgeries. I've had my salivatory glands removed because my mother said that I drooled. I had the feeding tube placement in my tummy. I had multiple eye surgeries on top on my, I had multiple eye surgeries on my right and left eye. Ear surgeries, a muscle biopsy to find out why my legs didn't work, and a surgery to make me not throw up anymore. I believed I had all these illnesses except that I knew I could walk and I knew that I could eat. It wasn't until I saw my attorney for the first time and he tells me there's been no medical records that that say I have cancer and it shocked me. I don't have cancer. It confused me so much. So what other illnesses don't I have? He tells me for the most part he thinks I'm perfectly healthy and that a lot of this is made up. I was happy to know that I'm perfectly healthy, but at the same time, it hurt because it's like my whole world has been tossed up and I realized that my mother wasn't who I thought she was. Didi's family in Louisiana, who had confronted her about the treatment of Gypsy years before, did not regret her death. Her father, stepmother, and a nephew all stated she deserved her fate and that Gypsy had been punished as much as she needed to be. None of them would pay for the funeral expenses, and ultimately her father and stepmother ended up flushing her ashes down the toilet. Gypsy, who served her sentence in Missouri's Chillicothe Correctional Center, has given interviews with various reporters over the years. In 2018, she stated, I feel like I'm more free in prison than living with my mom, because now I'm allowed to just live like a normal woman. She later told BuzzFeed reporter Michelle Dean that she had been, a, that she had been able to research Munchausen by proxy, which, as Bob said, is now referred to as factitious disorder imposed on another, on prison computers, and that her mother had every symptom. Neighbor and friend Aaliyah stated in an interview, I just don't know what I was doing to make her feel like I couldn't do something. I don't know what made her resist, just opening up and just telling me what was going on. So I understand why Aaliyah might feel like she could have done something in this situation. She could have helped out. But Gypsy had been made to feel like there was no escape. Her mother had said this. The actions of her mother had made her feel like she was stuck. And to be absolutely honest, most abusers stay in most abuse victims stay in their situation because they don't believe they can escape their abuser. They don't think that people will believe them. They believe that their abuser has some sort of power over them. So I understand why Aaliyah feels the way she does. However, it is so common for abusers to go unreported because they they don't see their neighbor or their friend as the magic bullet to get them out. There is no way on God's green earth that Gypsy thought Aaliyah Woodmansey would ride in and get her out of this situation if she told her. 
she right. most likely thought if I tell Aaliyah, Aaliyah is going to tell Dee Dee, and then what's going to happen? So right. on this, I have to say I understand where Gypsy's coming from on that. Right. Rod stated, if I had any indication that she needed any kind of help, I would have been over there in a heartbeat. But I've never been able to make Gypsy feel like she can call me and there was something wrong growing up like that. So I feel pretty bad about that. Gypsy said, I couldn't just jump out of the wheelchair because, to be honest, I was afraid of what my mother might do. And I didn't think I had that I had anyone to trust. I couldn't tell Aaliyah because my mother was starting to put things in my head that Aaliyah wasn't my true friend and that she was a bad influence on me. So I couldn't be friends with her anymore. And I didn't reach out to my dad because I grew up with my mom saying all these horrible things about him, that he abandoned us, that he didn't love me or her, that he didn't want anything to do with me. So I thought he wouldn't care. So why reach out to him? If I had known then what I know now, I would have reached out to anybody for help, but I was too afraid to. On June 27th, 2022, Gypsy married Ryan Scott Anderson, and not much is known about him. According to the marriage certificate filing, he's from Lake Charles, Louisiana. On September 29th, 2023, the Missouri Department of Corrections confirmed that Gypsy has been granted parole, and as of the date of this airing, was released on December 28th, 2023. She served 85% of her sentence per state law. She is 32 years old. So this is probably the most high-profile case that we've covered, or at least in the top two. Mm -hmm. she, Gypsy Rose is pretty well-known. If you guys haven't seen it, there's a documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest. Definitely yes. worth watching. Definitely worth taking a look at. She, they also did a, an episode on Investigation Discovery called Gypsy's Revenge. That was really, really good. And Stars actually did a series called The Act. Now, The Act was pretty good. They, the actress that plays Gypsy does a really, really good job. She sounds like her. She looks like her. They did a really, really good job there. I will say, though, it is a fictionalized or a dramatized. Let, let, let's put it that way. It is a dramatized version of what happened. So right. they do take some liberties. The biggest one that I personally saw was they're a lot kinder to Nicholas Godijan than... I think maybe he deserves. They portray him as more or less a nice guy gone astray. And the more I read about this case, the more interviews I see from him, the less and less I buy of that narrative. But Gypsy's story resonates very deeply with a lot of people. Anybody that has had any form of controlling parent, abusive parent, you can you can sympathize with some of the things that she goes through, though very few people will go through the extent that she has. But as a result of everything that she has gone through and done, whenever I see her interviews or I hear her speak or I read articles, I do have to put it through the lens of how much of this is Gypsy protecting Gypsy and how much of this is Gypsy telling us the truth about things that only her and Godijan know. Now, right. Godijan doesn't contradict her very often at all. He's been very much taking the fall on this. It reads very white knight syndrome to me. Mm -hmm. um, and 
in a way it's kind of almost sickening to to listen to some of the some of his interviews but again they're 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 worth it if you want to conduct your own research on it this case has been fascinating to both of us for quite some time we've discussed airing this one and the timing of it as of the time of this airing she's been a free woman for a day so mm-hmm. hopefully hopefully she makes the best of this and she has a great life and things move forward well for her i wish her well same for her new husband who we know nothing about he probably <laughs> prefers it that way but we'll see how that goes but this podcast in particular was a very very big and heavy one for the both of us there there was a lot of research and whatnot that went into this one i think mm-hmm. but but i myself i i learned a lot from this one because while yeah. i knew the the top line of the story i'd seen the act i'd seen one of the documentaries and the id thing digging into the conditions that both of the perpetrators had it's definitely shown a lot more light on it it's it's made it much more gray for me yeah and it's because it's it's easy to point at a murderer and say that was wrong yeah but when you dig into some of the motivations it it becomes not so clear-cut at least for me dear listeners please make up your own mind but you know i do encourage you to to dig into some of the things that that we've discussed here today just to give you a a little bit deeper understanding of the severity of some of the things that occurred yes now with that being said rebel i do believe it is time for our missing person of the week yes what do you have for us this week this week we have rita janelle papke she was 41 at the time of her disappearance on january 16 2015 in tama iowa she is five foot four tall, between 145 to 170 pounds, and is Native American with long brown hair and brown eyes. She is part of the Meskwaki Nation. DNA samples have been permitted for her. She left the Meskwaki Bingo Casino Hotel near Tama, Iowa, and never returned home. Family members reported her missing on February 18, 2015. After she first went missing, police believed her to be in the Des Moines or Cedar Rapids area. The Squawky Nation authorities first offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to her location, but in January of 2019, they doubled that to $50,000. In a Waterloo Cedar Fall Courier article reported January 17, 2019, there isn't a single day that goes by that we don't think about Rita. Her children, brothers, and sisters and extended family grieve every single day and hope for a chance to bring her home, said her mother, Iris Roberts. The family is also spearheading a number of new initiatives with the full support of the council. The tribe has approved grid field search training for community members and volunteers tentatively scheduled for the first week in May. Organizers said it will be a meticulous search over the entire Muskoki settlement. Over the next few months, volunteers are encouraged to help with fundraising efforts and support to keep Rita's memory alive, and organizers are also raising awareness of the missing and murdered Indigenous women. So far, that search has turned up nothing, so they're still she's still missing as of today's date in 2023. So they are organizing volunteers to try and get out there and actually search this entire area. That's yes. a massive undertaking. Yes. 
So if you have any information relating to Rita Papaki, please contact Detective Kimberly Swartz at the Meskwaki Nation Police Department at 641-484-4844, the tip line at 641-484-5400, or the Tama County Dispatch at 641-484-3760. And as always, as Bob says, you can report things to Crime Stoppers anonymously or any police department anonymously. You beat me to it this time. <laughs> that said, also, if you are able to, the training of these people to do grid searching, the volunteers that are needed, like anything that you can do to help with the fundraising efforts to to help find this this woman and bring closure to her family or bring her safely to her family is greatly, greatly appreciated. This yeah. is a very underappreciated effort that's being done. Like we haven't seen that level of commitment by local authorities in any of the other missing person cases that we've done so far. Mm-hmm. So again, for whatever reason, this one really, really speaks to me on that. So if you are able, if you're in the area and you can volunteer your time, please do so. If not, this is a charitable time of the year. If you can, anything will help. So we're we're hoping to, again, keep people off of our podcast except for this part, and we're hoping to give happy updates. So anything you can do to, to forward that, please, 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 please do so. Well, Rebel, I think that brings us about to the end of our extended podcast this evening. Yes. So if our listeners are so inclined to share our stories with their friends and family, where could we be found? So we're on most social media sites at Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. We host our podcast on Podbean and we're available on most of the major podcasting streaming services. So we have it on Spotify and Apple and things of that nature. And we're always looking for new and interesting cases, which we have a series of those coming up here soon of ones that have been requested by listeners. So we're going to start airing some of those here soon. So we're always looking for new and interesting stories. So if you have any, go ahead and email us at murderosity at gmail.com. In fact, dear listeners, that series starts next week. So stay tuned. Obviously, we'll be giving shout outs to all those that that reach out and, and request. Feel free to shoot us an email, hit us in the comments section, hit us on social media. We're happy to engage and talk with anyone and everyone. Give us your feedback. How can we make this podcast even better for you? I know it's great for us and we're having a blast doing it. So, Absolutely. So Rebel, I think that's going to do it for me for the evening. Yep, Thanks. Me too. Thank you everybody for listening and stay safe out there.